Hey y'all, the podcast is finally back after years of stop and goes, but I've decided to make a Hydrahead podcast thing where I do very different kinds of episodes of the podcast under the same account. I just couldn't decide what to do with it, so I decided to sort of do everything. With that said, welcome to the Solved Unsolved Mysteries. It's a scripted sub-podcast slash podcast segment where I slash we watch an episode of the old show, Unsolved Mysteries, which is now on Hulu and Amazon Prime with updates, and review and expand upon the subjects of the episodes. I also look at things from a pretty skeptical viewpoint, so I like to poke holes in some of the goofier stories included in the show, as well as add further updates and details to all the stories mentioned in the episodes to really flesh out the stories more. I was a huge fan of this show when I was a kid, and I loved real crime stories, I loved horror, anything horror, and I loved being scared. But now I think this show is a great example of how cultures can sort of get their wires crossed when it comes to real true-to-life experiences mixed up with crazy stories about ghost hauntings or cryptid mysteries. Okay, so on the one hand, you have a professional forensic analyst explaining how they were able to catch a notorious killer. And on the other hand, is a man with a thin mustache explaining how a Walkman cassette recorder can pick up electronic voice phenomena and then actually doesn't and then says he does. Right, I know, talking about spooks and haunting and the chupacabra is fun as shit. I loved it when I was a kid, but as an adult, I want to, I don't know, lovingly shit on some of the aspects of the show, have fun with it, and look at it from a modern perspective. Also, I like to make fun of the bad people in these stories a lot, the bad people, and uh, I swear a lot, and if those things make you uncomfortable, then you should probably move on. I encourage you to watch the episodes of the show before you listen or watch this podcast. It will make way more sense. But I may splice brief clips of the show into the video audio upload version of the podcast to make it simpler. I'm Robert Stack. I'm Ultra Magnus. Basically, here's how the show's gonna work. I record myself listening to an episode, or watching it, if you're listening to it, you're only hearing me listen to the episode. I take notes and do research, and then I come back and make you a presentation on each of the topics. Does that sound like fun? Well, fuck you, Jeremy, you don't have to listen. Let's kick off the episode with the unsolved mystery of the RMS Queen Mary's hauntings. This program is about Six dollar champagne and we're ready, we're after the races. I love that this show came out in 87 and I had to tell people that it's an entertainment show, not a news broadcast. Oh, there's the theme So just as a summary, this is famously one of the most, quote, haunted places in the world with all the ghost sightings. But as the show says, the Queen Mary is actually a kind of interesting story. So basically in the show... They explain a brief history of the Queen Mary, and then they talk about all the hauntings. For some reason, I picked up a cup of coffee, went out to the table, and there was a lady sitting there. I was so fascinated by her dress. She appeared to be in a late afternoon cocktail-type dress from the 40s. She had dark hair, rolled at the sides, no makeup on. She seemed to be very pale. 
but I never saw a movement. I left the table, went up about 10... So, okay, I'm going to go ahead and comment on this lady's story right away. Usually you can tell somebody's lying when they have, like, an incredible amount of detail. Um, I am probably the last person that should have had these experiences. And they always say, I'm a skeptic, and I'm the last person that would see it. Uh, the last lady said she'd been there for 14 years, but she, she didn't say when she saw the ghost. She gave way too many details. You're a waitress. How many people do you look at a day? Probably in her 60s or 70s, in black and white. She's Okay, so this woman sees ghosts in black and white. So this is another weird thing where people associate the past with black and white and dead people with black and white. And dead people are always old people and or people who are wearing clothes from an older generation. The ship was originally an ocean liner that sailed for the Cunard Line for about 31 years between the late 1930s and the 1960s. It was originally built in Scotland and intended to make regular routes between Southampton on the south coast of England and New York. It did so as a flagship and was internationally known at this time for being one of the finest ways to travel between the two countries. As Robert Stack mentioned in his sweet, amazing, beautiful voice, the 1940s and World War II caused large ocean liners that traveled long distances overseas to sort of not do that anymore. In the Second World War, the Queen Mary was turned into a troop ship. No shit. Due to her ghostly gray camouflage, she was ironically nicknamed the Gray Ghost. Weren't all battleships gray back then? The ship, along with a few others in its class, were retrofitted for Navy use as troop ships to carry large amounts of soldiers, as many as 15,000 in a single trip, across long distances. The ship was actually much faster than the Navy ships at the time, being only a few years old, and also because it was built with that magical rich old man technology. And it was able to outrun the German U-boats and most other threats it would run across. The show briefly mentions the HMS Curacoa incident that the old maintenance man was referring to whenever he said he heard loud sounds of crashing and screaming late one night of soldiers, but I'll cover that in a minute. He heard the sounds of metal tearing, water rushing, and then men screaming. So you're telling me this motherfucker is on a boat for months at a time. And he was wandering around in a part of the ship where it's basically abandoned late at night on a late shift. <laughs> and he's like, I hear weird sounds. After the ship's service in the war, it was retrofitted as a luxury liner yet again and given this new crazy thing called air conditioning. It served as a passenger cruiser for another 20 years or so until interest in using ships to travel overseas became less and less profitable and the old Queen Mary was sold off to be a tourist attraction in Long Beach, California for nearly $3.5 million at the time. The boiler rooms and most of the mechanics that drove the ship for 30 years were removed and museum spaces, restaurants, and amenities replaced them. The HMS Curacoa Incident. The Curacoa. That's not spelled the way you think it is. The HMS Curacoa was a C-class light cruising vessel, originally built for the First World War, but wasn't used all that much because it wasn't on the water all but a few months before that war ended. It had a long history of being damaged and out of commission, or on reserve or used as a training vessel, for much of its life until it was deployed again, retrofitted as an anti-aircraft cruiser in World War II. 
It was damaged by a German aircraft, and after extensive repairs, it was reassigned to escort ship conveys. This is where it ties into the Queen Mary. Okay, so I'm not Dan History's hardcore danstery. I'm not going to give you every crazy little detail and every name of everyone here because you are not going to remember it anyway, and I'm lazy. So here's the basic deal. Ship captains are of a particular mindset. They sort of trust one another's skills to be very high while also fulfilling their exact order in a very exact way and don't really seem to give one another all that much leeway. It's really sort of unclear who is in the wrong in this situation, so that's all I'm really going to say about that for now. But the Queen Mary totally rear-ended the shit out of the HMS Curacoa like a teenager at a drunken dance party. Remember when I mentioned U-boats? Yeah. The fear was still real about U-boats, but the Queen Mary was faster than all them shits. But the Curacoa wasn't necessarily faster than the U-boats, and instead used a popular tactic to invade the enemy vessels. The U.S. military developed a pretty simple and smart tactic to avoid U-boat attacks, and it's the same tactic I use when trying to find an open fucking spot on the subway. Zigzags. The ships would cruise at a certain speed, in this particular case, the equivalent of about 30 miles an hour, which doesn't sound fast until you weigh 81,237 tons. Yes, tons. So just picture this if you're listening. This fucking boat, the fucking Queen Mary, is 200 feet longer than the Titanic and weighs twice as much as the Titanic and has 160,000 horsepower, which is a thousand times the horsepower as my old Subaru Legacy. Anyway, the HMS Curacoa was escorting the RMS Queen Mary and zigzagging and traveling at slightly different speeds. The Queen Mary is 20 times the size of the Curacoa, moving much faster, but Curacoa is in the front because it's got the guns. They're zipping around all over the goddamn place, and Queen Mary gets so close, it almost slaps the Curacoa. Now keep in mind, the Queen Mary's got 15,000 troops aboard. The Curacoa is staffed by about 330 men. Now, instead of breaking formation, or slowing down, or trying to get the escort to speed up, they collided. One witness to the collision, as found on Wikipedia, thank you Wikipedia, through a BBC interview said that the Queen, quote, sliced the cruiser in two like a piece of butter, straight through six-inch plating. Fuck. See, this is actually a much more interesting case than the show warranted because of this particular story. Because who's at fault? The event itself was completely kept out of the press until after the war for propaganda reasons, and the details are a little bit muddied. But basically what happened was this. Both ships are fucking zigzagging, and they ships are getting closer because Yas Queen Mary Elizabeth Weinstein is moving much faster. The debate is, partly, why the ship being escorted is moving faster. It is rumored that the ship was spotted and tried to move in between the Curacoa and another escort ship on the other side in a protective formation and thus tried to speed up and go around the ship. I couldn't actually find military record of this part happening. What I did find was a shift change happened two minutes 
before the boats collided on the Queen, and the first officer of the Queen admitted to, quote, assuming the smaller, more maneuverable ship would change course. Now, is that a quote or is that something that I just quoted because it's more or less what the guy said? I think it's more or less what the guy said. Anyway, that guy assumed the smaller boat would change course to get out of the way, which, of course, did not happen. So you might be asking, what were the rules of the road at the time? On Well, the, rows, the rules of the water road. Right. Well, the overtaking ship is supposed to yield and change course. So if you're coming up behind a ship and you're going faster than that ship, you're supposed to just go around it. The Queen Mary thought the smaller ship should yield because it was 20 times smaller and much easier to yield. And possibly that the first mate physically couldn't yield in time once they realized how close they were. So it was a stupid misunderstanding that gets even more stupid when you realize that these are all professional seamen on both ships and each captain was notified of the problem and each captain was advised to yield and each of them dismissed the suggestion for reasons I already mentioned, i.e. military guy said, follow the rules. The big boat guy said, this boat's too fucking fat to move. So nearly 330 military men were cast into the water that day with few survivors. The Queen Mary was possibly sighted, that much is dubious in the details as far as I can figure out, and was ordered to continue to its drop point to deliver its large payload of soldiers while it signaled for nearby boats to pick up the sailors from the HMS Curacoa. I like to make stupid jokes when I tell these stories, but that was a genuine horrifying tragedy that I can't even imagine in happening to anyone I know. It's kind of a bummer story, but one that's more deep and interesting than the show let on with. Because ghosts! Also a fun fact to temper the sadness and death, the Curacoa's nickname was the Cocoa Boat. Fun. And now, ghosts! Oops. At least 49 recorded deaths. 49 people died. After Why were some of them in color and some of them in black and white? Sightings of ghosts were immediately reported as soon as the ship landed in Long Beach, California after it was purchased by Long Beach for the first time. Fucking Long Beach. For these answers, of course, we must head to BuzzFeed. Just kidding, but they actually did do a fucking article and video exploring a very scary haunting in which the staffer experienced a terrifying haunting when a Ziploc bag fell off of a shelf by itself in the bathroom 18 inches from him while he was moving around brushing his fucking teeth. Fuck you. But that's kind of my argument for all of these things, okay? I don't want to go into a rant, but okay, I will. Okay, fine. Came into the pool and um, I heard giggling, uh, sound of a little girl. Or she didn't just hear fucking water splashing and then your brain went giggling. You know that shit happens to me all the time. I'll walk by and I hear a weird sound and I'll think it's like a person and then it turns out that it's like a fucking tree. You know, like like wind going through a tree. Not like the trees talk to me. I could do a 45-minute tangent on why I don't believe in any ghost stories, but I wouldn't be saying anything new, and I wouldn't really be convincing anyone who believes in them to not believe in them. In one of my previous podcasts, we discussed that 
By making a perfectly logical argument with pointed evidence, you almost never actually convince someone to come over to your side of thinking thanks to the backfire effect, where for some asshole reason the human mind makes your belief stronger in the face of threatening its validity, even if you're clearly wrong. It's definitely why I myself believed in this kind of shit when I was a kid, and any evidence someone could have shown me or lack of evidence would somehow become proof that it's real due to some kind of weird Pink Floyd's The Wall music video dream logic. And people frequently misremember their own stories, exaggerate and add detail, and just flatly lie because people are unreliable. This is why witness anecdotes aren't valued super highly in the scientific community or even in most courtrooms. I understand why people feel like they have these experiences. Our brains are programmed to fill in the blanks to create patterns where there are none and sense danger even if there isn't any. It's in our firmware and it's there to keep us alive because thousands of years ago when we had to go into the forest and forage for our own chicken nuggets... Uh, add to that creepy stories about all the people dying on the boat, the, the boat crashing into and killing tons of soldiers, the fact that the boat is very old and is actually in need of dire repair right now so it doesn't sink by 2020. Look, okay, boats are drafty, dark, damp, and creaky. They're giant rusty coffins of death. Of course you get freaked out when you go on one, but what really comes down to is... The binary decision of, is it more reasonable to assume people are unreliable storytellers or more reasonable to assume that the afterlife is real, ghosts exist, and they have to choose to be in technicolor, black and white, or clear, and they have to either appear as their current selves with clothes on as they died, or as children, or as just voices. Do clothes have ghosts? Why do ghosts wear clothes? If I was a ghost, I'd be bear-balling it all around all the time, poking sleeping staff of the HMS Queen Mary in the ear with my penis, but that's just me. I'm starting to actually kind of get into this episode and, like, not talk. I need to go get some more champagne. Got this here, uh, André Champagne Brut. I think that's how you pronounce it. I can only pronounce things in Japanese. It, it cost me uh, six dollars, but that—that's a weird sound. Is that a ghost? Anyway, let's look onto the Queen Mary website. Did you know that there is a paranormal section of the website? Paranormal section of the website. Again, if you'd like to visit the real Queen Mary, it's open to the public because it is permanently stopped in the harbor of Long Beach, California. It's a permanent fixture, although technically it is still floating. It has several attractions, restaurants, and functions as a hotel for crazy people who want to sleep in an old boat. You might be wondering at this point, are the ghosts mentioned on the website? You bet your ass they are, and they have several activities for the bored, gullible paranormal investigator in all of us, such as dining with spirits. Fine dining and ghost haunt and ghost history tour. Basically, you get to have dinner in one of the onborn restaurants, uh, Sir Winston's Restaurant and Lounge, and then you get a paranormal tour around the ship. 
Apparently, this is actually a decent restaurant purporting to serve guests at about $45 per plate, and it has a 4.5 out of 5 on Zagat's. What would you pay to eat in a quality meal and walk around looking for ghosts shortly after? Is it $134 US dollars per person? No? Well, fuck off. I gotta say, I wouldn't mind going to a weird old historical boat that served in World War II and paying a little bit of money for a good meal with lobster bisque. But I have a thing with boats where I hate them, and I mean you're trapped in a giant metal coffin and people expect that thing will stay afloat for some reason, but it won't because it won't float forever, goddammit. One day the rivets pop loose in the wrong place and everyone's trapped in the hull and it's not a fun romp like the Poseidon adventure. It's real life where you're dead and in a ghost boat and now you gotta choose between being in color or black and white or clear but still stick to water and it's too difficult to make that fucking choice if you don't have 300 bones to blow up on a weekend with your significant other on steve beck's ghost ship there's paranormal shipwalk where you walk around the ship at night learn about the history of deaths and hauntings as it says decide for yourself if the ship is really haunted this takes two hours and costs $44 per person, parking not included. How much is parking? 18 fucking dollars, so a party of two could expect to pay up to $106 to walk around on an old ship at night. Fun. I think if I had to pay that much, I'd also decide that the ship was haunted. Also, I just noticed something. It doesn't actually say what kind of meal you get at the restaurant here, but... The paranormal walk costs 44 bucks, right? So am I getting a $90 meal with that? Let's look. Nerdy details. Looks like you have a few choices, but it is at least a multi-course meal. So you can have Caesar salad or lobster bisque. I mean, you're getting lobster bisque. Pink champagne sorbet for your intermezzo. I prefer a Key West intermezzo. And your entree is either a 12-ounce ribeye with bream, bream, green peppercorn sauce asparagus and roasted peewee potatoes are those made by paul rubens that or the cedar plank salmon brussels sprouts bacon and acorn squash or your final choice pan roasted chicken which is a half roasted chicken paul rubens potatoes ratatouille lemon herb panju top it all off with a tahitian vanilla creme brulee that actually sounds good not a bad meal i gotta say is that worth 90 dollars let your wallet decide. 5.5 out of 5 on Zagat's. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah. Uh, you can also do the paranormal investigations aboard the Queen Mary. You are grouped together with the Para Explorer Project's Matthew Schultz. And this guy takes you around the most haunted areas of the ship and tries to link up with ghosts in some sort of congress, be it sexual or otherwise. You get to, quote, employ handheld monitoring equipment, share captured evidence and participate in group electronic voice phenomenon recording sessions and experimentation that place you in an investigation environment. It's an exciting evening of potential paranormal discovery. How's my pop filter working there? Exciting. That one takes over 2.5 hours and will cost you 
$79 per person plus twerking. And at the bottom, it says guests are strongly encouraged to, quote, bring their own cameras, voice recorders, and investigation equipment. That's amazing. Oh, my God. It's a TCM 6DX. That's the older version of the TCM 17. That's the one I use. It's the different version. I have a tape recorder, and I'll tell you right now, that motherfucker cannot record sound at a long distance. So if this were fake, like like something at Universal Studios, which is insanely expensive yet still cheaper than this shit, I would probably love it. Running around and capturing fake ghost voices and completing some kind of task to win some kind of live-action puzzle game on a ship at night actually sounds like a ton of fun. It becomes not fun when you realize it costs a dick ton of money and everybody is trying to get you to believe in ghosts in order to make you feel like your money hasn't been wasted. And, and, that is where I get pissy and this gets a little gross for me. If it wasn't before already, real people actually did die on this ship. And now, because people are dumb, they've monetized the sad actual deaths of real humans by convincing you that ghosts are real, and by paying money, you can get to see a ghost on this damn ghost boat. It's worded very strangely on the website, like, see for yourself whether it's real. But I, but I have to buy that it's real to pay the money anyway. If you, if you don't believe in ghosts at all, why the hell would you spend money to wander around on a leaky old ship in the first place? The cheapest that you can do that is $44, right? At night, with all the, the skeeters biting you and the deckhands handling their dicks in the every dark corner of the ship because you can't get privacy in a goddamn boat. We're all packed in here like sardines. And Joe Nichols' book, Paranormal Adventures, he's a, a favorite skeptical uh, investigator of mine, on page 179, he references the Queen Mary and how many stories refer to people, quote, waking up in bed due to a stimulus, a noise, uh, being touched, etc., and waking up to find no one. He explains that this is a waking dream, a very common phenomenon mixed with a creepy atmosphere. Nickel also addresses a more recent book written about the Queen Mary on the website, centerforinquiry.net, which is a great place where nerds go, and by that I mean it's one of my favorite websites. I twice prowled the Queen Mary in 1979, once on July 8th and at length during an overnight stay, December 9th to the 10th. I encountered nothing of a paranormal nature. Some people, I conclude, have gone aboard without bringing along their critical thinking faculty, and some have been hustled by the power of suggestion put forth by, quote, psychics like Peter James. Others have been victims of more elaborate deceptions. When the ship was operated as an attraction by Disney Corporation from 1988 to 1992, a room was rigged so that, quote, ghosts related to a certain tale, quote, would appear, 62 to 63 and 92. Again, a later Ghosts and Legends tour created special effects to enhance a tale involving a spirit in the pool area who supposedly left wet footprints, such having been manufactured to, quote, fool tour guests, 77 to 88. And there is one of the most enduring tales about bed covers in one room being, quote, pulled down to uncover wary guests while they are asleep. 
As it happens, this tale was the catalyst for the controversy involving the crew members of the show Ghost Hunters and an employee of the ship, all of whom accused the other of fraud when the show caught what it thought when the cover's moving, 91. So Disney operated the ship as an attraction. Ghost Hunters faked something there. Why do we believe any of this? Anyway, thanks to the Queen Mary website, Wikipedia, NavyHistory.org, CenterForInquiry.net, and the BBC for infusing this part of the show with knowledge facts. Things I didn't really reference, uh, the weird plaque that lists all the deaths that have happened on the boat, uh, which I might include a picture of somewhere, the story of the cook being cooked alive uh, in his own walk-in oven, that has no actual written evidence that it ever happened. There is a cook listed on the plaque, but it says he died of a brain hemorrhage. Uh, and exploration into the idea that Disney itself actually used the ship to make pretend ghost encounters. Walking down the corridor, and I could swear that I smelled the fart of a ghost. It was a very eggy smell, because lots of people used to eat eggs a lot in the 40s. I felt that there had been, not that I was hearing it physically, but that at times someone was a very rhythmical banging as if someone had... Blech. I'm tired of talking about the fucking boat now. Um... RMS Queen Mary Hauntings. This mystery is pretty much solved. People are bad at explaining spooky feelings. Update. It's kind of a dick move to charge people lots of money to pretend to look for ghosts of real people who died on your ship. What can explain these hauntings? Overactive imagination? Yes. A quest for publicity? Yes. Or something more intangible? Something supernatural? Nope. Is the Queen Mary haunted? cannot say yes, but we cannot say no. We're saying no. So let's move on to the wanted section of the video. The, this is about to get more depressing. Wanted, Joe Shepard for the murder of Roxanne Woodson. So did you like that last part? Because uh, here's where the brakes to the steam train start to get pumped. I am starting to, you know, I, okay, I'm going to make jokes and make fun of this show. And sometimes the people on this show are real people that have had real bad things that happened to them. And I want you to, to be cool about that. I'm not making fun of people for being murdered or hurt. Being murdered isn't funny. But what is funny is Joseph Arlen Shepard's terrible fucking mustache. You see how I did that? That's basically what I'm doing here. This story takes place in 1978 in Teleco Plains, Tennessee. So basically, I mean, I hope that you watch the episode before you listen to this podcast because I do sort of kind of skip over things in the show, assuming you've already seen them. So basically, this 15-year-old girl named Roxanne goes missing. And the last time she's ever seen is in a car, possibly a Mustang, by this dickhole named Joe Shepard. Was that a 260Z? No, it's not. Ew. That was a fucking Mustang. I'm a fucking idiot. But Roxanne was a badass motherfucker and manages to escape momentarily. But Joe follows her into the woods. And returns later saying to his friends, Oh yeah, he had a car full of friends while he was sexually attacking a girl. He told his friends she ran off and they just left. Because it's Tennessee in 1978 and holy fuck. I have waited until this point to let you know that Joe Shepard 
who I dislike very much at this point, is 26 years old, while Roxanne, the girl he was assaulting, is 15. Right? Fuck this guy. The show is less fun now. So anyway, the police take notice of this story, find Joe, ask him what happened, and try to take him in for questioning. Joe is living with his parents at the time, and his parents let the cops in. They ask Joe to get dressed and come down to the station, and he goes back into his room to put on his cowboy boots because, again, it's 1978 and it's Tennessee. Well, the cops go peep in on his direction, and Joe grabs a shotgun out from under his bed. Joe reached for a shotgun. What the fuck? Holy shit! Yeah, they fire two shots at him. Yeah, they were just warning him. So they wrestle Joe down. They get Joe to the station, and a mustache duel occurs. Joe maintains he doesn't know anything, and that it's all a big crazy misunderstanding, where all he tried to do was rape a girl and she ran away, and that's all he knows. They charge him for trying to attack them with a shotgun, and he gets released on bond. He is fucking released on bond. I can't figure out how much bail they paid, but still, Jesus. So again, because it's 1978, they form a search party, and Joe is allowed on the search party, and they go and look for the girl where he last saw her, and they never find her. Crazy how that happened. And then, Joe's mom finds the girl's body in her fucking yard. Uh, then he says, okay, yeah, I chased her into the woods, but she fell and crook her head. She had fallen and crook her head. So then he leaves with his buddies and goes home, like you do. Look into the mustache, Joe. We found Roxanne, Joe. Look at my mustache, Joe. Look at this photo, Joe, but then look at my mustache, Joe. Later, Joe returns, takes her body puts it in probably a Mustang, and drives her to his parents' house, where he buries her body in their fucking yard. He says he did this because, really he said this, because he didn't want any animals to get at it. Fuck you, you're an animal, and also, fuck you. Oh my god, the mustaches are so amazing. Conduct a search. And they told us he wasn't there. We went in and searched the house and found him. There was a child in the bed, and he was rolled up in the covers under the foot of the bed. Like the cover was just rolled down the foot of the bed. He was hidden in there. So after all this, Joe finally confesses only to burying her, but not murdering her. But he is recommended to be charged in the murder. And his bond is now set at $150,000. Joe was taken back to jail, and there was an anonymous phone call which linked Joe to a disappearance two years ago of a girl named Kathy Clowers, who was 14 at the time. He says he could take the police to where he saw her for the last time. The last place I saw her. Was it the woods where she crook her head, you stupid bastard? They insist that he show them where she was now, Joe then admitted to knowing where she was buried. Now Joe, in handcuffs, escorted by police, went to the exact spot 
Joe had pointed out, and they dug a pickaxe into a piece of cloth belonging to the 14-year-old Kathy. Joe, reportedly, was proud of how accurate his recollection had been, and that motherfucker was immediately charged in her murder. The thing is, I mean, there are many things, but the thing is, she had been buried with her pants leg wrapped around her head. That was the same way that Roxanne had been buried. So not only had they both been seen with old Joe Dickface, but both of them had been buried in places only he knew about, and they had been prepared in the exact same way upon their burial. He was fucked. So Joe is in prison now. But what happens in prison? Well, apparently two random jackoffs fake a terrible sickness inside their cell, call in a guard, and trip a goddamn cell guard to enter their cell where they beat him up and steal his keys. They let Joe out because why the fuck not? They are almost immediately captured. But Joe... Joe is a ghost. Not a ghost like on the Queen Mary, but fucking disappeared. This was in July of 1978. And then no one saw Joe again, at least not knowingly, until a fan of Unsolved Mysteries contacted the police to report a suspiciously similar man living in Canada named Joe Tripp. Obviously, it was too difficult to come up with another fucking first name. Joe Tripp does indeed turn out to be Joe Shepard, and he was extradited to Tennessee, where he was convicted of the second-degree murder of Clowers. But, again, somehow, he got a pled down to involuntary manslaughter. Fuck the law. I mean, if you listen to the last podcast or my favorite murder, I mean, fucking what the fuck? But, but, okay, but. He was then later convicted of first degree murder of Roxanne Woodson and finally got his death sentence, which was later commuted to a goddamn life sentence. And get this part. Part of his conviction was due to a third woman testifying that Shepard had raped her at some point in the past as well. Fuck you, Joe Shepard. Now to the end of the story. Finally, in 2010, Joe Shepard died of natural causes at the age of 57. I don't fully know how that works because 57 seems pretty young, but I'm not going to ask questions. Also, the woman fighting for her grandchild in the original broadcast Seeking Justice, the grandmother, Dorcas Woodson. I kind of maybe made fun of her name earlier. Because you haven't got her. She's gone. Dor- Dorcas? Her. her name's Dorcas? She's out there and you can't reach her. You can't help her. Passed away about one year after he died. I have to be genuine for a moment. I'm sorry for her family's loss, both in her and her grandchild. But the fact that that woman finally got to see justice for her granddaughter, both in conviction and the death of her killer, is somewhat vindicating. Another sad point, while in Canada, Joe had remarried and had children. He was living a normal life as Joe Tripp, as a repeated rapist and murderer. And when he was caught, his family was pulled apart. His common-law wife and children regularly sent him letters while 
He lived out the rest of his life in prison. It's all very depressing. Uh, don't rape and murder people. I mean, I can't even imagine. I mean, imagine growing up and realizing that your dad is a multiple murderer rapist and then he has to go to a different country to serve out a life sentence. It's just, oh my God, dude. It's horrible. Solved. Wanted criminal caught, convicted, and died in prison. Well, that was sort of depressing, but you ain't heard nothing until you've heard the story of Gail Delano. I'm going to truncate this one because it's kind of, I don't know, getting really depressing. And uh, the show actually explains pretty much everything that happens, and uh, there's not really a lot of extra details I can give you in the past uh, you know, 10, 15 years since the show's been over. If you've already watched the episode, you know what happens, but I'll try to briefly summarize what happened here shortly. Gail Delano was a divorced mother of two, aged 33 or 34. The shows and the articles that go with the show's ages are always off by one year for some reason. Anyway, Gail Delano went missing. Maine seems to bring out the worst in me. I don't see an end to my loneliness. Why do you not like Stephen King novels? Gail was a depressed person seeking a man for a good relationship. She was lonely and taking antidepressants and often wrote in her diary of how she was tired of her main surroundings and wanted her life to be different. Gail Delano was twice divorced and the mother... Hey, Gail Delano, she's cute. She thought that getting into a relationship might help out her mood and situation significantly. And honestly, I can relate to this so goddamn much. Gail had submitted a personal ad in the newspaper seeking a man for companionship. Companionship in the personal ads of her local newspaper. Let me just stop right here. Don't ever do that. Seemingly, she had met that man. Gail had been speaking with a man named John over the telephone for long periods of time, over two hours, before her disappearance, and had marked him in her daily entries, which she always kept, and mentioned him by his first name only, to other family. On the night she went to meet John at Howard Johnson's, she disappeared. I look a Honda Civic. June 21st, 1986. Gail Delano drove alone to a restaurant in Brunswick, Maine. Once she was legally declared missing, her Honda Civic was searched and the police found nothing. Curiously, when they attempted to move the car, Gail's keys were found underneath approximately where the front wheels had been, as if someone had placed the keys on top of the front tire, and no one had noticed. A young boy had found Gail's purse in the bushes of the Howard Johnsons, and aside from the cash being missing, nothing seemed wrong with the purse, and it was found to still be quite organized inside, as if she simply removed all her money and placed the purse in the bush. Very strange. Her parents appeared on the show, pleading for anyone who recognized Gail to come forward. Normally I know the person's first and last name and where where he's from, but this one time we just missed. Oh, it God. had to be that one time. And she said, I have a feeling I'm going to have a date, I'm going to do something happy, and I'm going to have fun this weekend. And oh, then, man. Look what happened. Oh, my God. Gail had disappeared in 1986. So fucking awesome. The last entry in her diary read God, he was the coolest guy who ever it would lived. It'd be nice to find someone to date over the summer. 
At the time, the show was looking for a man possibly named John who was involved in her disappearance. But, update. In 1988, a forensic specialist recognized Gail from the broadcast. She matched the description of a mystery body that had been found in Mobile, Alabama two years ago that had died of a bad drug overdose. Update, okay. Mobile, Alabama. They found her? Oh, no! No! Oh, shit! The evidence was pieced together as follows. Poor Gail, at some point, after meeting John at Howard Johnson's, or simply using that date as a misdirect, and maybe there was no John, left her purse and parked her car at that shitty restaurant and somehow found her way to the airport and traveled all the way from Maine to Alabama under the name Jackie Stafford. She booked a few days at a local hotel under that name and was found three days later with abnormally large quantities of drugs in her system. Seemingly, fed up with her life and its direction, she left her poor children for a fake date absconded all the way to Alabama and used a fake name to hide her identity and killed herself in a Hilton hotel room. Exactly why she did it that way and how is still a mystery. As she was a meticulous person who journaled everything, but evidence of her going out on a date that night or meeting with anyone who recognized her has still never come to light. The only entry is a entry in her calendar that said date John on that particular date. There is no real reason to believe there are any other details that are needed to close the case on her death at this moment. And to her parents and sons, we oh my god, this was a fucking roller coaster, dude. This sucks. Gail. God damn it, Gail. Oh man, what a fucking heartbreaking episode. If you get me, you can listen to the clips. I fucking rooted for Gail. I, I don't watch this show before I record myself seeing it. I'm doing it for the first time in 20 years, so I don't know the stories. I really hoped this one would come out okay for Gail, and but it ended up being pretty tragic. I'm really sorry to her family and her friends that went on the program to try to find Gail, but the show helped them find her body, and at least it gave them some kind of closure. The show is at least awesome in that regard, and the people that helped solve this case are badasses. I can't imagine how sad I would be to be the age those kids are. And, my, and I was a, a kid of a single parent, and my mom was dating at the same age. And if she had gone missing, oh my God, I couldn't imagine how terrible it would be. The two years she was gone, and they found out that she had been dead the whole time. It's, it's horrible. This podcast is less funny right now. But that's the end of the story, unfortunately. Solved. Gail's body was found shortly after she was declared missing, and her death was ruled a suicide. Well, that's episode one. I'm sorry it got so depressing the second half, but that's how this goddamn show works. Some of it is silly bullshit, and some of it is super sad. Originally, this episode featured... Uh, the Gulf Breeze incident, which was like a UFO sighting thing, as one of the mystery stories. But that case was actually solved and moved to a newer episode about a year or so later. 
so we'll cover that laugh-a-minute tale of failure another time. I'd also like to point out that uh, I didn't even know this, but Unsolved Mystery started out as a series of individual shorts on NBC before it became a regular television series. So uh, if you go and search for Unsolved Mysteries Episode 1, the stories featured here are the ones that you will find. If you search for the individual stories, they'll be mixed up on when they aired because the show was re-edited as they gained new information. So, uh, for instance, the Gulf Breeze incident was edited out of the first episode and put later in the season, or maybe a year later in that other season. This is all on Wikipedia if you really want to be super specific about it, uh, because the show was updated. But anyway, uh, the show has been cut up a little bit, so that's kind of my note on that. Anyway, I'd like to thank the Unsolved Mystery Wiki page for making this job easy on me, even though I had no idea it existed until I started Googling. I honestly had thought that maybe everybody had forgotten about this show. I want to thank you for listening to the show and maybe subscribing to it in whatever way you're hearing it now, YouTube or iTunes or whatever, wherever the show goes. And lastly, honestly, I want to give my sincere condolences to the families affected by the terrible shit that happened in this episode. People are fucking monsters sometimes, and it really sucks that decent people get caught up in their bullshit. Let's do a lot of true crime podcasts. And this wasn't really intentionally a true crime podcast, although I guess it was sort of inspired by that. And you have to kind of walk that weird line where you want to kind of be yourself and maybe make jokes and be weird and be funny while you're talking about these stories. And sometimes it's just horrifying and not that funny. <laughs> so um, sometimes it's just terrible. And honestly, if your family was featured in this, I'm sorry. Um, uh, I don't. I, I'm never gonna make fun of victims for being victims. That's just a terrible thing. I'm not. I'm not interested in that. I don't find that to be funny. I'm gonna make fun of their shoulder pads of the actors who portray them in the show, though. Anyway, hopefully we'll do more fun stories about stupid cryptid bullshit or ghosts or whatever on the next episodes and less about horrible suicides and murders. Oh my god. Anyway, that's the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed it at least a little bit. I know I got sort of depressing in the second half. And remember, for every mystery, someone, somewhere knows the truth. So always, tell the goddamn truth. This is me, Chris. I'm signing out and uh, expect a new episode sometime soon. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye now. Beer! Footage and audio from the television show and Solve Mysteries is used under fair use. This show is not affiliated with the television show, and the footage and audio is used under a fair use without permission. Please support the Unsolved Mysteries by watching it from official licensed sources such as Hulu or Amazon Prime. Unsolved Mysteries is by NBC, CBS, Spike, Lifetime, and currently distributed by Film Rise. We miss you Robert Stack and Dennis Farina. Music by 3Chain Links from the album Phantoms used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Please see companion text for full license and link. Please visit 3Chain Links on SoundCloud. If this is 3Chain Links, please answer my fan mail. Goodbye.